Oh, I'm just a typical American boy from a typical American town. I believe in God and Senator Dodd and I keep an old Castro down. And when it came my time to serve, I knew better dead than red. But when I got to my old draft board, buddy, this is what I said. Sarge, I'm only 18. Welcome, Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Last week on our Patreon, we talked a little bit about the protests and police violence that have become so visible in virtually, I guess, every major American city, right, as well as abroad. It's been a pretty extraordinary week, uh, very frightening and discouraging in a lot of ways. When you see, for example, that the ruling class in the United States is basically openly floating the possibility of a Tiananmen Square style solution to the situation. We saw that in the pages of the New York Times this week. Something that's kind of remarkable about this week, though, is how quickly certain ideas, particularly about the police that were once considered fringe, are entering the mainstream. Obviously, these ideas were not exactly fringe, you know, in left-wing groups or in, say, Black Lives Matter activist circles. But, but you know, like the idea that we should defund the police force and redirect that money into social services, the idea that police, not protesters, are instigators of violence in many cases, the idea that police exist first and foremost to protect property, wealthy white property, Again, these ideas may not have majority support. It's been so hardwired into society that the police are a good and benevolent and noble institution. And a neutral one, which is a really important part of their supposed appeal. But the fact that they're being increasingly talked about and in in mainstream venues... Just in the last week, it seems, there's been remarkable progress. Uh, Mind you, the fact that being talked about doesn't mean the systems that enable this situation are necessarily going to topple immediately, but it's remarkable to see nevertheless. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a reason why, you know, the forces of the American state have moved so kind of quickly and ruthlessly to try to contain this unrest, and that's because, uh, Unrest of this kind does change things. It does work. It does draw attention to things. And there's something, I don't know, there's something about the way the capitalist state functions that it has a visceral need to be obeyed. So when people defy these curfews, um, the instinct of police forces is to, and it looks like possibly even the U.S. military and state governments, etc., and the federal government, the instinct is to implement even more repressive measures. But this often seems to have the opposite of the desired effect. It's supposed to scare people, but instead it just further discredits the very order it's trying to uphold because people go, well, wait a minute, why are there militarized police forces marching through my neighborhood? Why are these protests being met with such brutality? Um, I'd love to see a study, is a bit of a digression, but I'd love to see a study, you know, a systematic study of how cable news is covering this versus how it's being covered on social media. Because one thing people are remarking upon is that if you watch it on cable news, you're getting a lot of those like uh, extremely contrived viral moments police kneel with the protesters in solidarity yeah police doing the tiktok videos in solidarity or whatever you know canadian tv at this moment is uh is gushing over justin trudeau apparently just took a knee on parliament hill or something so those are the kind of things that you'll see on tv and what you don't see of course are the police beating people up attacking defenseless people attacking attacking essential workers attacking journalists 
you know, all of that is nonetheless happening and people can't help but notice it. All of which I think just further discredits this system and opens up space for reform. I mean, I just saw, I guess it's not so much a surprise coming from her, but Ilhan Omar, who is a Minnesota-based congresswoman, uh, is calling for the uh, Minneapolis Police Department to be dismantled. The fact that a member of Congress, even if it's uh, the most left-wing one such as her, would say something like that mm-hmm. it would have been unthinkable 10 years ago. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredible. Um, but of course, um, as this continues, and I think it probably will, it's very likely that the measures are going to grow more and more repressive. So that's a, a scary thought. I mean, there's not much to say about this Tom Cotton, you know, this awful Tom Cotton op-ed. Uh, it is funny that earlier today it emerged that, you know, it seems like there was no real process that this thing went through, no kind of vetting process apart from a 25-year-old, some kind of desk editor at the New York Times whose only working experience was with the now deceased Weekly Standard, the right-wing rest rag, billionaire-funded right-wing rag. Yeah, rest in power, Weekly Standard. Um, where such luminaries as David Brooks, now at the New York Times, graced its pages. It reminds me of another incident. I can't remember how many years ago this happened, but there was um, briefly a worldwide Twitter trend that was just the words, when genocide becomes permissible. And this was because of a op-ed blog post published online by the Jerusalem Post, the uh, Israeli-based right-of-center newspaper, the Jerusalem Post. I think it later turned out, so this trended worldwide because, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think I need to uh, say too much about, you know, what was about, you could probably guess from the title. But yeah, like the guy that published that just somehow had publishing privileges himself and just kind of put it up there. And um with this Tom Cotton thing, it just seems like, you know, this was a, I mean, not not that it would, not that it surprised me that the New York Times op-ed pages would do this. They host appalling opinions all the time, horribly repressive, authoritarian and illiberal opinions, you know, under the banner of uh, welcoming all perspectives in the name of free speech or whatever. But uh, the background of this one just seems uh, astonishing. And um, while I usually don't engage in this kind of thing, it was pretty heartening to see so many New York Times staffers just express, you know, open disgust and a kind of an open revolt um, against it. And then, of course, the usual suspects like Barry Weiss doing their, uh, ex- you know, their bullshit free speech argument, which cliche to point out at this point, you know, never, never applies to uh, other kinds of things that they disagree with. That fact that it was apparently just placed by this one 25 year old conservative editor I mean, I believe it, but it also almost seems too good to be true. It feels a bit like a case of the time saying, well, we got to we got to find a really easy scapegoat for this because James Bennett can't take all the blame because it's difficult for me to imagine that James Bennett, the editor of that section, would look at that Tom Cotton piece and not think, oh, yeah, that's fine. That piece represents the kind of conversation that people in elite circles are having right now about these protests. If people want to read more background on this, the Daily Beast has a, a useful bit of reporting. The title is New York Times Executives Take Turns Apologizing to Quell Staff Revolt. Of course, the editor who was defending the piece didn't actually bother to read it, um, you know, admitted that. He was asked, you know, about this by various angry staff members on some kind of staff call. And he just kept saying, you know, while well, there was a breakdown in our processes or something, This is from the piece. During Friday's call, staffers demanded a full autopsy of the publication of the op-ed, but Benish pushed back, saying he was not pleased with the paper's decision to publish the name and background information of the editorial assistant, 
Adam Rubenstein, formerly of the Weekly Standard, a now-defunct conservative outlet who oversaw the piece. Bennett confirmed that Cotton's column will not run in the newspaper's Sunday print edition. Anyway, don't know how much more we need to say about that, but I think lastly, one useful exercise is imagine the American media how they would react if this was, say, Venezuela and some kind of major newspaper published a piece by a, you know, member of the government or something that was like, send in the troops. That exercise applies to so many things and it almost seems cliche to bring it up, but it's uh, it's invariably a useful one. Well, last week we talked a little bit about this popular idea of outside agitators. The idea that America is tearing itself apart because of people and elements that are not really part of the peaceful protest. Well, the outside agitator trope has a long history, often used to discredit radical or left movements. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot of truth to it, too. And, and I know that because I watched a chilling film today that showed just how vulnerable the United States is to outside agitation. It's the 1952 propaganda film, Invasion USA. Control, another day of infamy has come within your lifetime and mine. Thousands of Americans have died victims of this treacherous attack, but it will not go unpunished. War or no war, people have to eat and drink. Make love. 24-hour shift for what? To make more money for you? We don't have to work for this rent anymore. I repeat, emergency announcement. Unidentified planes approaching New York. The red alert is on. So the only thing we could think to do this week was watch, you know, the most reactionary film we could possibly find. And I mean, though the competition in that department is pretty Herculean, and we've already made a few other efforts in this regard on this podcast, this was Will's pick, and it's a pretty damn good one. Um, This is one of those things, I mean, partly because it's so old, but because it is so extreme in its portrayal of this imagined communist takeover of the United States military invasion. It's actually very funny. (laughs) I laughed out loud several times watching this film, even though I do think it is an extremely useful portrayal of a number of tropes which continue to animate sort of anti-left reaction, whether we're talking about the protests that are going on right now, or just the kind of generic opposition to socialism that has characterized so much of American politics since the 1930s and before. This movie has been featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000, which should give you some idea of its reputation. It is a B-movie, a low-budget B-movie, although it was picked up for distribution by Columbia Pictures when it came out and earned a very tidy profit. I saw a poster today that had a big quote on it by Hedda Hopper, one of the great, well, not great, one of the famous celebrity (laughs) journalists of the time. She She had a column where she reported on, you know, movie star gossip and also warned about the impending Soviet threat, and she said that this movie will scare the pants off you or something like that. The movie is more or less evenly divided between stock footage of World War II, uh, you know, military (laughs) stuff, which has been repurposed to look like the Soviet invasion, and more prosaic scenes of just characters sitting 
sitting in a bar watching all this stuff unfold on TV. So, you know, uh, you could probably watch this film. I don't know if it's on YouTube, but you could watch it because it is a trim 74 minutes and it is much, much less if you don't, if you just cut out the... Like we should have, a, we should do a Michael and us edit of Invasion USA. That's just the scenes where anything happens, because so much of the movie, like this film, was a make-work project for like some bureau at the Pentagon, where they were like, you know, Saj, what are we supposed to do with all this stock footage? You know, and they created some sort of make-work program for the troops to to edit it together into a film. Much of the film takes place in a New York City bar. In the opening scene, we meet a group of characters who I suppose are supposed to represent a cross-section of American society. Okay, okay, can we can we get right into this? My favorite scene in the movie is this, the first one. There's oh, so, so many good. funny things to remark upon here. You know, the movie opens, it's like, yeah, here's a bar in New York. This is normalcy. Americans are... You know, they're drinking, they're they're listening to the sports news. You're hearing about like a baseball game that's just happened. Um, and then what's that? A newscast. It's like they're uh, breaking, breaking news. There are rumors that uh, enemy planes have been spotted over Alaska or something. And they're like, huh, that, that sounds serious. And they just keep drinking. And then a reporter comes in and he starts asking them questions about like the mobilization of... You know, do, like, do you support draft? And, you know, by that, I mean the full draft, you know, factories, rationing, as well as every every man and woman uh, in, in the service or whatever. And he interviews a couple people in the bar. And I love this from start to finish, because as Will said, the people in the bar are supposed to be this cross section of American society. And the film represents them kind of as these hard sons of toil. Like he asked them what their occupation is. It's like, well, uh, well, sir, I'm a cattle raiser. You know, so you're picturing some guy that like some, I don't know, fucking cowboy or something. A guy who works with his hands, a guy who's out in the sun. But then it's increasingly clear from the details that he is like, just a like petite bourgeois like he he's not a cattle raiser he is a businessman who owns like a who owns a ranch and he's like well i don't support support any of those things because uh that that would mean higher taxes and the government already takes too much of my money and i i don't want my cattle requisitioned by you know some government bureaucrat or something like that it turns to another guy and it's like uh it's like what do you do um and the other guy is like a what is it a tractor he's a tractor baron yeah he's some sort of industrialist you know, he describes himself as like a tractor, you know, again, something that he it's supposed to be like, it's a description that again, it's a, I can't remember what it is, but it's a description like he builds tractors with his hands. Of course, it turns out he's like literally a factory owner. Hard sons of toil are not drinking in this like swanky Manhattan bar where they're joined by the like their company is like some extremely glamorous woman. Like they're it's an expensive like Manhattan cocktail bar on like a Friday night or something. Well, with that tractor salesman, we see him in a flashback. You know, the the idea of a draft really gets his go. We see a flashback where somebody from the government comes to visit him at his factory and suggests that maybe he could use his tractor factory to help make munitions to ready the United States for when the inevitable invasion or when the Third World War happens. And he says, nothing doing. You know, that's communism. The the draft is communism because I don't serve the state, I serve me. And I I love this because it's kind of like, it's that side of anti-communism. Like, anti-communism is about two things, fundamentally. It's about there's this external threat this this menace that's coming for you but it's also about and this is kind of where the this is where the outside agitator thing like brings everything together it's like but communism is also already here and it's all around you 
Like, what was that stupid Christian movie that we watched, like, many moons ago that's, like, the like communist takeover of the United States or something? I think I know the one you're talking about. That would be, uh, if, if footmen tire you, what will horses do? Which also depicts the uh, communist takeover of the United States. Right, and, and sort of, as I recall, it's been a while, but, you know, it's like forces within American society are kind of enabling this. It reminds me of... um. We should watch it sometime, but there's that, is it Clive Owen or Gerard Butler, one of those guys, like a, a British Van Damme style actor in that movie, London Has Fallen, Oh yeah where, yeah, where the premise is that somehow the London Metropolitan Police have been infiltrated by terrorists. So like a third of the police force or something or half of it, they just look like London police, but then they're working for the equivalent of Al Qaeda. So then our hero just ends up gunning down police the whole movie in the interest of fighting terrorism. It's kind of like a horseshoe effect there. But this this film kind of uses the same thing because the Soviets are landing and they're wearing American uniforms, which is part of it. So it's like, folks, they look like us. The commies could be anywhere. But uh, in addition to the rancher and the uh, tractor baron, there's also a New York society woman who I think we are to infer essentially likes the comforts of capitalism and doesn't think too much about where they come from. And there's also a blustery Southern congressman who uh, is against war, but he's also against taxes. So I loved him because even for a B-movie, his like appearance in it is so contrived. He overhears the journalist interviewing these people and he and he's, he starts glad-handing and he's like, uh, Hi folks, I couldn't help overhearing a conversation. Democracy, all about conversation. Uh, I have many conversations with congressmen. People send me letters all the time. No one hears conversations like a congressman. They tell you what they like, what they don't like. And I'll tell you what they don't like. Communism. I'll tell you something else they don't like. Taxes. Okay, folks, gotta get back to Washington. See you later. And he, <laughs> he scampers off. And then I guess the final character in the scene is the guy who announces himself as a forecaster. Seems to be a vaguely foreign origin. Somebody who sees through the hypocrisy of the Americans. That's right. And he's asked about, you know, by the journalists, you know, do you support rationing? And he says, we need a different kind of leadership. You know, and he says, oh, interesting. What kind of leadership would that be? And he says, we need a wizard, Um, a wizard who can make communism go away. That's what everybody seems to think, that we can just make communism go away. So this that's going to be important later in the film. Anyways, very quickly, things turn bad. In the span of a, a few minutes, seemingly, uh, you know, the newscaster comes back on and it's like, uh, uh, guess what, everyone? It's no longer a rumor. Soviet planes are attacking Alaska, which... I got to fact check you there. It's, it's technically not Russia. It is the enemy. Oh, excuse me. That's a really good point. And actually, that's something I wanted to bring up as well. The communist menace in this film is just represented as as entirely general, even though it's clearly the Soviet Union. But the film doesn't bother to actually name these invaders as Russian. They're just sort of generic, vaguely encoded as foreign enemies, which is, is, I think, kind of important. It seems like silly to point that out, but I do think that's part of what it's doing. I was a bit disappointed by the lack of ideology in the film. In that other one we watched, If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do?, the preacher's thesis was that society in America was becoming too accepting of sex, uh, you know, because of sex education at school and because of the there's no stigma to going to a dance. And, and all of that weakened our moral fiber and will somehow allow Cuba to invade. But in this one, the enemy is depicted as just kind of generic brutes and savages. There's not a lot in here about, like, 
what freedom means exactly and how they differ from the United States ideologically. I did think there was a little bit of it. A part of the conversation in the first scene that I think we missed is when, you know, the journalist asked the female lead, do you support rationing and government requisitioning and stuff? And she says, you know, well, I served in a factory during the war, but, you know, I quit because uh, I kept breaking my nails or something like that. In addition to just being generic sort of 1950s sexism, it's also, I think, supposed to convey that, you know, having won World War II, the United States is becoming decadent. Everybody just wants, you know, the the forecaster guy in his spiel says something about, you know, uh, people just want a fancy car. They just want to, you know, they just want a new TV, whatever. Uh, they're, they're jealous because the Wilsons have a have a taller fence than they do or, you know, what whatever bullshit, <laughs> something like that. And I think that's supposed to signify the complacency that's kind of set in. And actually, I wanted to digress a little bit on this because it recalled for me an old blog post of Corey Robbins that contains a really interesting insight that I think is very useful in understanding anti-communism but conservatism as well. And it's a post which refers to a conversation that Robin had with, uh, of all people, William F. Buckley, late in Buckley's life. And the crux of the conversation was that Buckley said, capitalism is boring. Devoting your life to it, this is a quote, devoting your life to it, um, as conservatives do, is, quote, horrifying, if only because it's so repetitious. It's like sex. And what Buckley meant by this, you know, this was the 1990s, um, was that, you know, in the 1990s, there was nothing to marshal the forces of, of liberty against. Conservatism during the Cold War subsisted on the communist threat and on marshalling everybody against it. You know, the implication is that Buckley felt that things had become very decadent, 90s consumer culture and just kind of this promised future of just endless prosperity and and a unipolar world was actually very difficult for his politics to grapple with. He wasn't happy that America had won the Cold War. And I think that's because conservatism needs some kind of external threat. And if one doesn't exist, it will kind of create one. That's why all these guys were so interested. You know, that's what neoconservatism was about, right? After, you know, 9-11, it wasn't just about this one attack on American soil. It was there is an extremely nebulous global network of forces that just hate freedom and want to destroy us. And therefore, we, you know, we need to rebuild the kind of repressive apparatus we had during McCarthyism or whatever. We need to marshal all of our, you know, energies or whatever against this new threat. And I definitely think going back to the kind of 50s anti-communism that you see in in this film, uh, there's a bit of that as well. From that opening scene, the communist invasion escalates rapidly. A-bombs are being used on American soil, including eventually New York City. The rancher goes home and is killed when Hoover Dam is attacked and he and his family are drowned trying to escape. You know what I like is that uh, the president appears on TV just as the invasion's starting and basically reveals the entire American defense strategy. He's like, he's like, our planes will will be flying to intercept the enemy uh, over Alaska. Meanwhile, the Ninth Fleet will be deploying uh, to attack the enemy on their home turf. At this very moment, thousands of planes are hurtling towards the enemy city to bring death upon all those who would transgress against freedom or whatever. And he's just like announcing everything the military is doing to respond live on TV. We do see, as mentioned earlier, a lot of military stock footage, uh, some of which I thought was kind of neat, you know, some nice aerial dogfights in there. 
Yeah, it kind of reminded me of, of the movie Foreign Correspondent, the Hitchcock movie. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I don't think it's stock footage in that film. It's like original footage he did, but that's kind of almost a B movie that is also sort of almost a propaganda movie as well, albeit a World War II one. And it's kind of a boring movie, but then the the like footage of planes kind of rules. And I love in this movie how it will like cut from kind of breathtaking aerial dogfight footage and then it'll cut to like one of the actors just just covered in fake looking rubble on a shitty like one room set. I like that the stock footage or excuse me, the news footage that is being broadcast on TV as the communists are invading Like a lot of it is stuff that would never be captured by a news person's camera. For instance, there seems to be a reporter literally in the field with the communist paratroopers landing like feet away from them, somehow getting the real footage, you know, back to where it can be transmitted. Or in another part, there's like a machine gun nest that's basically pointed at the camera and is shooting. And it's like what we're visually being asked to believe is that an American machine gun nest is firing it at advancing communist troops, but that the reporter is filming this from out in front of the machine gun nest (laughs) and presumably being shot at from behind by the communists. And the film climaxes with the New York Society lady uh, being held against her will in a hotel room by two of the communist brutes and literally throwing herself off the balcony so as to avoid her likely fate. And then finally, we learn that it was all a dream. Very likely it was the forecaster who cast a spell over all the characters and forced them to live out this nightmare scenario. And then they find themselves back in the bar at the start of the movie. They, they all know what they saw and they realize that they need to devote themselves entirely to America's military readiness. In fact, they do need to pay their taxes. So yeah, you know, Dorothy uh, bangs the red slippers together, gets back to Kansas, and it turns out, I mean, this is the ultimate, you know, and it was a dream movie. And in this case, a dream made by a wizard. I do like how in this movie, the way it envisions what a full-scale invasion and nuking of the United States would be like, life pretty much just goes on as normal in much of the country. Like, uh, there's a scene where a whole bunch of people are trying to just get commercial flights. And they're like, oh, sorry, sir, everything's booked. They don't don't say, uh, well, there's no commercial flight to, like, Fort Worth at this moment, sir. There's a nuclear war underway. They say, well, sir, we can get you on a flight. Like, by the end of next week, you can wait. Or then, I loved how the U.S. Congress is just meeting during all of this. And then as, like... You know, some congressman is giving a speech like, Congress must do everything at its disposal to marshal the forces of freedom in the defense of the blood. And then, like, the speaker bangs the gavel and he's like, the communists, they're outside. We're surrounded. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, the U.S. military comically inept and the U.S. Congress as well, literally doing some kind of uh, session while communist troops are advancing, like on the National Mall. Extremely funny. Well, you laugh, but it was very hard for me to watch. It was it was difficult to see a scenario so plausible to realize that this could happen tomorrow and ask myself, would I be ready? I already said something like this probably on our If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do app way back when. The thing that's always struck me as incredible about a certain type of conservatism, and I guess this must go back to the Cold War, is this belief that absolutely everything conservatives don't like leads to communism, like no matter what it is, everything is a first step towards communism. Like, okay, if the thing was that uh, nationalizing, you know, the entire economy or something 
that leads to communism. I mean, there might be some sort of foundation for that, but it's actually always like uh, reforming the sex ed curriculum, you know, like that creates a permissiveness, which creates like fertile ground for communism or just people becoming sort of like lazy and not like hardworking. That creates the grounds for communism or people just protesting about anything in particular is communism. Like everything is communism. I feel like this movie makes some sort of attempt to set some limits on its worldview because it comes down against those people in the bar who don't want the state to tread on them. You know, like it insists on certain deference to the government and it insists on certain certain sacrifices citizens have to make in pursuit of a higher ideal. Well, isn't that isn't that perfectly emblematic of conservatism in general um, and also of the moment we're living in, right? The same people who bleat about how the creeping hand of the state is creating communism all around us in our public schools, in our libraries, in our universities, you know, in our factories, whatever. They actually want a big state when it comes to the state's kind of disciplinary functions, when it comes to having a colossal military, or as the case may be, police departments gorged on, you know, Rambo-like arsenals of, you know, hardware made by Lockheed Martin or, or whatever. The same people who were complaining that, you know, the the state was ordering them to stay home. They couldn't gorge themselves on fucking food at Applebee's or whatever a few weeks ago uh, are now like, yeah, bring it on. We want the cops to, you know, suppress everybody, shoot tear gas into people's homes, the death panels crowd, the people that think that socialized medicine similarly leads to death panels or whatever. You know, just a few weeks ago, we're saying, well, hey, I mean, people die all the time. If we have to send people back to work and then some people die, I mean, that's just a that's just a sacrifice for the greater good, isn't it? It's tempting, I guess, in all this to point out that there's some kind of inconsistency or that this is a hypocritical position. That might be, I don't know, rhetorically useful in some cases, but it's important to note, even as you're doing that, that you're not really pointing out uh, an ideological inconsistency, because what I just described actually is totally coherent when you think about it. This is not opposition to repression or the state as such. It actually involves vigorous support for the functions of the state that will protect private property, the functions of the state that, you know, inculcate people with a sense of nationalism and duty and obedience and things like that, and those that encourage the efficient functioning of markets and things like that. And you can very much see that mindset at work with, you know, the right in the United States right now, where these, you know, great sons of liberty and defenders of speech are, you know, literally calling on the military to come in and suppress people's First First Amendment rights uh, and also brutalize them in the process. This is KRO San Francisco. While no A-bombs have fallen on California, an unofficial report from Northern California states that six ships flying the flags of six different nations were intercepted by the United States Navy and found to be carrying enemy personnel and equipment. Turn it off, will you, Mac? Anything you say. So if you're listening from the United States or somewhere other than Canada, you may not be aware of the latest piece of uh, content created by our, our extremely viral prime minister, who is a kind of walking, sentient BuzzFeed listicle. But it's all the rage in Canada. And in fact, it has been picked up in the foreign press. I saw a piece uh, in the New York Times about it just earlier today. And uh, if you're in Canada, you probably already know what I'm talking about, which is that earlier this week at a press conference, Justin Trudeau was asked about what's going on in the United States. 
Um, and he took a pause of about 21 seconds, well, exactly 21 seconds before he answered. And when he answered, he delivered kind of the usual pablum. He didn't really say anything. Now, the tempting read, which is what immediately comes to mind, particularly if you're a bit cynical about Justin Trudeau, is, you know, well, you know, his centrist brain kind of spluttered in trying to devise the most perfectly tepid answer to this question. You know, how how could I say, how can I say something that's so perfectly lukewarm that it both won't, you know, make the Americans uh, mad at me, but will also satisfy, you know, the brand I've built, the cachet I've built as the kind of quintessential anti-Trump figure. That's kind of one read. And that was the read a lot of people kind of Canadian left Twitter, I think, initially had. But my read on it, more or less as soon as I saw it, was that Trudeau actually did it deliberately. And he did it because he knew and his, you know, comms team uh, knew they are very good at this kind of thing. They knew that people would sort of project whatever they wanted into the silence. They knew that those kind of predisposed to like Justin Trudeau, and I think his approval ratings are pretty high at the moment, as kind of all leaders' approval ratings are, or most of them are, during the uh, coronavirus. Trudeau's comms team knew that the silence would be received almost as if he had actually criticized Donald Trump. And I just think that is such a perfect metaphor for Trudeau's whole brand and how it operates right there and how it perfectly games the press and and public opinion in Canada, because it is a kind of choose your own adventure where, you know, he's both not saying anything that would annoy the Americans. And he's kind of all he's creating space that allows people to imagine that he's saying that he might be saying or thinking something critical of Donald Trump, um, even though he's not. Um, do you remember that time a few months ago, maybe it was even a few years ago, when the Queen made an appearance with Donald Trump and she wore some brooch or some piece of jewelry or some some item of clothing that um, because, because of its history, because of something that happened in the 13th century or something, may be interpreted as a, a veiled jab at Donald Trump. And there were many people in liberal circles who thought that was a real Slay Queen moment. None of them seem particularly excited when Jeremy Corbyn just straight out says he doesn't like Donald Trump. Why do they seem to prefer these like hidden subversive gestures rather than the overt ones? It's an interesting question. I think when these things happen on the level of symbolism, you can kind of color them in how you want. But then on the other hand, because they're symbolic, i.e. entirely made up, they don't actually disrupt anything. And and so I've been amazed, you know, some of the people, the kind of, uh, you know, Trudeau supporters in my mentions past few days on Twitter, you know, it's like on the one hand, these people want Trudeau, they think Trudeau is the quintessential anti-Trump figure. But then whenever he, you know, something comes up that actually tests that and he fails it, they always say, well, what do you expect? He's got to maintain good relations with the Americans. This is actually a political masterstroke. Um, You know, he would endanger Canada's interest, blah, blah, blah. And so it's like they don't actually want anything to change. They just want to feel as if, you know, they want to fantasize about like what that would be like and kind of tell themselves that it that the defiance is happening in the first place. I mean, a, a more obvious example kind of without the silence would be uh, when Trump did the Muslim ban and Justin Trudeau did like a worldwide viral tweet that was like, you know, all are welcome in Canada, yada, yada, yada. And of course, nothing about Canada's, you know, border policy or refugee policy or anything like that actually changed in the process. And, you know, the people that effusively tweeted about, you know, well, isn't it good the liberal order has like oh, one last tribune or whatever in the age of Trump, um, they didn't care that nothing actually changed. The symbolic repudiation kind of was the point.
And I guess the slightly less cynical read on this, you know, at least when kind of, uh, I don't know, more ordinary people are reacting well to this kind of thing, is that people are so starved for genuine acts of resistance from political leaders that they have to invent them. So, you know, every time Nancy Pelosi goes viral because she is seen to have snarkily clapped from a particular angle or something, it is very comforting to think, well, no, there is an opposition in Congress and they're fighting Donald Trump and blah, blah, blah. And um, that's a lot more comforting than there is a bipartisan consensus around the current regime of policing or mass incarceration or renewing the Patriot Act. But these people also crave, these are the people who crave bipartisan consensus. They're the ones who like the idea that there are no red states and blue states. And, and they're the ones who feel sort of existentially threatened by a Bernie Sanders or a Jeremy Corbyn. That's right. So the desire is to have symbolic resistance on the one hand while having kind of nothing change on the other. That's liberalism in a nutshell for you. While one side says, send in the troops now, they symbolically resist while quietly nodding along. I've been Norman Mellard, Maxwell Tellard. I've been John the last three months have been full of a lot of news. You know, we, we've seen these parallel crises of uh, police violence and of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And one of the stranger things is there has also been this like constant cyclical dispersing out of news about uh, Woody Allen in the last three months. It started in March like right at the beginning of the pandemic when his book was going to be published by Hachette and then there was the staff walkout. Then another publisher picked up his book and so there was a wave of news articles about that. Then there was a wave of reviews of his book. And now I guess his most recent movie is opening at various parts of the world. It was the number one movie in South Korea, strangely, because theaters just opened there. And because of that, it was briefly the number one movie in the world box office wise, which is a strange fact. And and so there was a cycle of things about that. And then uh, he's publicizing his movie. So there were he's given a number of interviews to various publications on both sides of the Atlantic. And headlines have come come out of that. You know, he he uh, it seems threw some shade, as they say, at, at his son Ronan over his journalism. And it, it's very strange to me that in the midst of this, you know, giant wave of bad news, in the midst of all of these generation-defining catastrophes that are happening across my Twitter timeline, occasionally my Twitter timeline will be interrupted by yet another eruption of the Woody Allen drama. And it seems like this thing that's been, you know, carried over from an earlier era. And it's just, it just keeps happening in the background, even during a time when, like, who in their right mind is thinking about this right now? And yet, it seems to have erupted in the last three months more than it has in the last decade. And it's just this all-pervading, constant din that's happening amidst all these other catastrophes. How many of these articles have you actually read? Oh, almost every single one of them. 